0: Hello and welcome to the Joy of Fundraising, a Tiltify podcast where we talk about all things fundraising in both the uh, live stream and general philanthropic space. I am your host, Daniel Casper bong I am the community manager for Tiltify and joining us as always is our social media coordinator, Miss Maggie Draskia. How are you doing today?
1: I'm wonderful, thank you.
0: Well, it is wonderful to have you here because not only are you the co-host of this podcast, but you're actually the special guest for our podcast because we are talking about all things social media and upping your social media game for both influencers and charities. This is something that so many people struggle with. I struggle with it. I mean, Instagram is just a foreign concept to me, and I'm sure it's a foreign concept to many people out there. So it's great to have you on. And of course, you have so much experience in this space. So really excited to spend an entire episode talking to you this time.
1: I'm excited to be here to talk about it. It's something that I'm very passionate about, so it's I'm glad that I can share it.
0: Well, how we got to that place is kind of where I want to start, because as with all of our guests, and I know we've had this from you in the past, we do want to understand kind of how you got to where you are today and what kind of built up the Maggie storyline, so to speak, of your life. So let's go to your upbringing and start with how you kind of found yourself from childhood to adult life to having kids, of course, because you talk about them all the time. I love hearing about your kids. and I love hearing about your family, but hearing about how you've been able to balance that and how you went from mom to now social media coordinator to also content creator to everything else that you do. So let's go to the beginning. Let's talk about your upbringing. How did it all start for you?
1: So I grew up with my grandma and my dad and uh my grandpa which was super great. Um she and my my grandmother and my dad used to play a ton of video games. I grew up on the SNES and the Sega Genesis and those like Star Wars Tie Fighter video games like oh, yeah, on the yeah. disc from like forever ago. Um and then my dad married my stepmom uh when I was 8 and they decided that my time could be better spent. So I got into drawing and reading. I did a ton of reading and a ton of drawing. And that was about it. I had a, I'm going to go ahead and say uneventful. (laughs) I had a mostly uneventful childhood. But I did actually have my oldest daughter at 18. So I was a very young mother. And that caused me to be pulled away from a lot of my friends. They were young. They weren't going into college. There was parties. There was all these things that I wasn't really a part of. And I found social media as a way to connect with people. I started out on AIM and it was just chat rooms, just being able to sit and connect with someone across the country or across the state even was, it was amazing. I had a sidekick and I don't think you could have like kept me off of that and wow, because it was just, it was awesome being able to use the internet to make up for all the socialing, social, socializing that I couldn't do. I wanted to be the best mom that I could be and I gave up a lot of my personal time and a lot of going out, a lot of the possibilities of socializing so that I could be the best mom if that makes any sense. Yeah, no um, for
0: sure. I mean they're they're your family, they're your blood now yeah. and especially at such a young age like you have such a more intimate connection with them I feel because you never necessarily got to kind of experience being on your own and being you know, a high school, young college student and getting to interact with people on that crazy level of being 20, 21, um, uh-huh. Uh-huh. and going to all these social gatherings. I mean, I, I was kind of the same way. I mean, I had a pretty uneventful childhood until I was about 14, 15. Then all of that backstory that we'll save for another time, slash I refer to numerous times throughout, but it, it, the point is, is like, it it was pretty uneventful and then we get to college and I kind of just went through the steps. Whereas we've had so many amazing guests that are like, oh, yeah, I did this and this and this and this and 90 million different things. But you you got to stay at home and be with your kids.
1: Yeah. Yeah. By 23, I had three kids. Twenty three, twenty four. I think. I don't know. I lose track. I just know that I had three of
0: them. (laughs) The years start to blend together. I guess
1: They do. They really do. And uh, when you're so young and you have a child, one child, let alone three children, there's a lot of expectation for you to fail. And. I won't say that my parents, my parents were very supportive of my kids. So they were very supporting. But you could, you got a sense from people like on social media that they were kind of expecting you to flop. So I, I early in my life learned to do my best and to try my best through having kids. And so I, I mean, I think I succeeded. I think I'm a great mom. <laughs> but yeah, so it, it led me to connect with content creation actually it led me to connecting with people through a game called second life and through wow and what i would do was i would take screenshots of characters and i would draw over them and make them beautiful and wonderful and fantastic and i would post them to a Flickr account that i had and that was my first experience in in like social media in growing in marketing myself especially in second life because i made real money off of it right like i would i would take appointments and learn how to market myself essentially and then i would say like okay i need this money and i was serious about it i was like this is something that i use to buy groceries or this is something that i actually actually use i busted my butt doing that for like five years yeah i learned so much through that it was phenomenal like these
0: these like second life i guess Habo hotel or like these Uh kind of socialized video games that allowed people to interact and in, exchange money with each other. Like, uh, yeah. what was the one that I played? I think it was Gaia Online or something. Like I that.
1: loved Gaia. Oh, that was what goodness. I guess. that yeah. was on there.
0: <laughs> it was so funny because so many people cared about it and so many people used it to really socialize with each other, chat with each other. And it really mm-hmm. was the this social experience that you're describing where we could really interact with people both in positive and maybe not so positive ways but uh-huh. Uh-huh. you could also make a business out of it and i think second life was the primary example of that before we got into like video game video games like uh-huh. world of warcraft and yes. auction houses and we uh-huh. won't even get started about diablo because that could be an episode on a different oh. podcast
1: <laughs> yes <laughs>
0: but it, it's like it You learn so many different skills when you are kind of forced into these scenarios and for you you were just looking to socialize and that kind of branched into your passions which you know eventually branched into content creation Mm -hmm. let's talk about that content creation because i know that you've talked about it quite a bit but you've been doing it for about five almost six years now yes yep so let's let's go back to you know that year like 24 ish for you 24 Mm or 25. How did that start? Because you were in Second Life, you were making a business for yourself. How did that branch into content creation?
1: So I actually got into doing photo retouching, um, which is something that I learned through Second Life. You take a two-dimensional char- well, three-dimensional character, but a two-dimensional screenshot, and I would add skin texture, I would add depth to it. So I learned, I learned how to retouch skin. And I actually started working with a photographer, and I would retouch their photos for them and that was my first like real job and i learned how to do photo manipulation from, se- from my from my time in second life which is like what i think they call now photo composites where you take like a subject and you put them in a brand new place after like cropping them out and stuff and you can make them into robots or witches or wizards or whatever right. so i was doing that with real people and it was awesome i thought it was amazing i made some book covers i sold them freelance and somebody asked me if I could make overlays for Twitch. And I was like, what is this Twitch thing? So I looked it up and I researched it, and I was like, oh my gosh, I could totally do this. I could totally make overlays. So I made some overlays, I made my account, and i stopped doing second life photos cuz i was like well i'm making real money now so well not real money but you know what i mean yeah. i'm making i'm making real world money <laughs> and so i started just with overlays i started watching twitch and then I was like, I could do this. I could play WoW or I could play Minecraft. I can't stream Second Life because that's against the rules, (laughs) (laughs) but I could do it. So I, I sat down and did it. And then I saw that there was a market for people drawing Minecraft avatars. And I very poorly started drawing Minecraft avatars. It was probably two weeks, three weeks of streaming in general. And a lovely group called the Build Guild was all in my channel. I had no idea who they were. I had no clue who Bacon Donut was or Chaos Chunk or Sevedis or Scarlet Rose or anyone wild commissioned me at one point, And I didn't know who he was. I had no idea. But he, they all commissioned me. They all wanted me to draw for them. And I was swept up in a lovely tornado of encouragement and love and support. And yeah, that was how I started commissions. I learned to market myself on social media for commissions, basically. All of my art everything. And then it just led into one thing led to another. I did artwork for Lucklin and his wife, and then they hired me at Microsoft. And then I learned more about social media and I learned how the do's and don'ts and how to be corporate, more professional, which for two and a half years there was very, very valuable time. And then from there, I got hired with you guys with Tiltify. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, the the Wild West, as I refer to it, like being on Twitch, maybe five plus years ago, I would say that their first couple years of being Twitch, so 2012 to 2014, 2015, those were definitely the years that was it was very difficult to kind of make a name for yourself because Twitch still didn't know their identity. It was hard to be a content creator because it was all gaming and trying to break away from gaming and especially for someone like yourself you almost pioneered that thought and concept of being an art streamer and being able to do commissions and to sell commissions
1: before there was even an art category i was streaming under minecraft or under wow it was scary times when people were coming in and saying get off of here this isn't minecraft and i'm like but there's drawing cubes
0: it's (laughs) minecraft art exactly it's uh yeah so before the before all the categories that exist like this is this is back like just in tv almost days where it was like all right you're in this video game and that's pretty much it so discoverability was so difficult that you really had to rely on things like social media in order to market yourself like you said so getting the name out there letting people know because people aren't going to go to the minecraft category And mind you at this time minecraft was one of the biggest games on twitch these days it's still pretty popular but back then it was number one like it wasn't call of duty it wasn't even world of warcraft it was minecraft so trying to market yourself in that category was near impossible because people are looking for minecraft content but Uh it did also make you stand out because you weren't in the minecraft client you were you know drawing on whichever app that you're using for drawing at the Uh time so You know, it's a bit of a catch-22, but overall, your social media skills definitely had to be taken up uh, the nth degree in order to have any success.
1: Yeah, it was definitely a feat.
0: (laughs) For sure. So let's talk a little bit about your Microsoft experience, because like you said, you worked with Lucklin, you worked with them, and they, of course, are folks that kind of pioneered the start of Mixer or working with Mixer and having content creators be on Mixer. So working for Microsoft, that's got to be an intimidating thing yes very <laughs> so when you're being asked to be a part of the social team for their live streaming platform which yes is a competitor to twitch what was that like and also being a content creator what was the most important thing or most important things that you had to learn going from being a content creator to now helping run the social for a live streaming platform
1: so i actually stopped streaming on twitch i stopped streaming altogether when i was hired for my with microsoft so learning through them the do's and the don'ts, the yeses and the no's, the professionalism versus amateur posting. Here's actually here's a great example. The phrase my views and opinions do not reflect upon my employer. Right. is the largest pile of crap that you could ever put on a profile. Right. Because it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't. You could go and post a picture of a butt And if your company doesn't like that, like, for example, Microsoft, they didn't like that, they could very well say, like, no, that reflects on the company that you work with. So working through Microsoft, being being a Microsoft employee, I learned that I am constantly reflecting my company. I'm constantly reflecting Tiltify or my brand as Draskia. If I want to make a post of a butt, I'm going to do it on a private personal account. <laughs> because that's going to be something that, you know, I'm I'm not going to have backlash on me. That's the biggest thing that I learned working with Microsoft, professionalism and just what I would call common sense things that aren't really aren't really too common
0: yeah that's that's the thing that we're seeing a lot of especially in 2020 and i don't know if it's because the state of the world or whatever the case may be but it almost seems like every other day something serious is happening that people are commenting on and when i got hired to tiltify four years ago i had a very quick realization that it's like yes i'm representing tiltify even if i put it in my profile which is why i don't put that line in my profile because doesn't matter i work for them people know i work for them so if i say something outlandish or against the grain, so to speak, then that is a reflection of the company itself. So, you know, eight years ago, when I started content creation, yeah, I could say what I wanted, because this is my brand. And I understood that me being my own boss, I can say what I want. And I will deal with the backlash if there is any backlash, both positive and negative. But the moment that you get hired to a company or you want to take your brand very seriously, you have to know that if you are going to say something outlandish, Unless that is a part of your brand, which I guess a couple people make a living off of that. It is going to affect you in most likely a negative way. Representing brands is very scary. And I remember like Tiltify is my first like official industry job. I've done consulting here and there for game developers and publishers over the years. But Tiltify was the first one where I was like, okay, I need to clean this up. So now my social is very straightforward. I don't comment on things, even if I have opinions, because it is a reflection of them. And I'm sure with Microsoft, that is like infinitely more scary because
1: Oh yes. in yeah.
0: comparison, Tiltify is a great company and we have amazing employees and we have amazing people that we work with and even celebrities at that point. And it's starting to grow into this great thing. Microsoft's been existing for 9 million years and I've done a million different things. So, uh-huh, uh, uh-huh. one, like it's not even one misstep. It's like you even hover over the line. You're going to get whacked with the newspaper. So to speak, let's talk about your experiences with Tiltify then really quickly, because uh-huh. I know that that shift was very different because yes. you went from content creator to representing your own brand, to representing Microsoft through Mixer to representing Tiltify. What was the difference in the shift from working for Microsoft versus Tiltify? Not saying that there's negatives, positives or anything like that, but what was the biggest difference for you?
1: The biggest difference would be, I don't want to say not answering or not having that sort of Damocles over my head, like it felt like I did at Microsoft, Right. but I would say that was the biggest difference, being being able to use my voice instead of using a corporate voice. And it's not a it's not a bad difference at all. It's a great, it's a wonderful freeing and and like you know, bird without a cage kind of thing. But it's it's been a shift. I think it's taken me quite a while actually to try and shake off the Microsoft fetters. One would say it's been great though. It's been wonderful. Tiltify has a wonderful voice built by you. So <laughs> it's it has been a very 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 great established voice. And I'm super happy that I've had the opportunity to take it over.
0: Yeah, when I was brought on, my main focus was definitely on community management and kind of being that front facing face of Tiltify. I was already a face that the Twitch community knew and YouTubers and Mixer and Facebook and everyone else would slowly get to know me over time. But the side effect of that was that I also had to represent the social account. So trying to build that voice was very difficult because... It wasn't me building my Casper persona, it was me building the Tiltify persona that was kind of already established, but not really. And Uh it's funny because, you know, on the video recording, they can see Tilty in the top right hand corner. And Uh that was something that existed in the like Tiltify 1.0 when it was first created before I was even on board. And then by the time I joined in April 2016, tilty wasn't a thing tilty was kind of like oh this is an afterthought uh tilty's pretty cool and then in 20 late 2018 2019 like right around the time you were brought in summer 2019 i guess it is we were like hmm maybe we should bring tilty back (laughs) and and give it a personality because tilty is a great like having a mascot or having having something that kind of represents your company that is identifiable Uh we have the t logo and that's all great and it's over there in the bottom left. Or bottom right. But you know, having having a visible character, I think is just really cool that we can play around with, especially when we're talking about kind of these new social medias, because and we'll touch about this later, but you know, just talk about it now. TikTok has had such a huge rise to power, so to speak, and so many people are finding fame off of TikTok itself. And TikTok was a concept back then, like even in 2016, where it was Vine right? These short form video compilations or whatever you're doing uh, in video format that's being digestible in 60 seconds normally or less. And
1: six. It, it was six seconds. Was back si- then.
0: Yeah, it was six seconds back then. And just the creativity that you had to have was really what Vine did great was that you could post videos on Twitter, you could post videos on Instagram, you could post videos anywhere. But to do it in six seconds and to still be funny or informative or anything like that, it, it was a it was a masterclass on how to take social media to that next level. So, uh-huh. uh, quickly talking about TikTok because I know that we have a partnership with TikTok now. With Tiltify, people can yes. fundraise using TikTok. But just your comments, what do you think TikTok has done for the social media landscape?
1: I think it has done amazing things. It's given people the opportunity to express themselves in ways that we've had, but the tools that they give us are phenomenal. You can edit a video, you can, you can record videos, you can record snippets of videos and then put more videos in between the snippets of videos. It's a very powerful tool in general, but for social media, the videos are between 15 seconds to a minute long. The average attention span of anyone on social media is four seconds. If you can't achieve and grasp somebody's attention within four seconds, you've lost them, which is why Vine works so well, which is why Instagram works so well, and which is why TikTok has, ex- well, musically previously, but now TikTok has exploded. So if you can, as a brand or as, a, as an individual, capture someone's attention for four seconds, you have 11 seconds to convince them which is the maximum time that someone will spend on a post, if you can capture them and get them to follow you, then you have done the job. What TikTok does is it takes it above and beyond where they want more of your content. I post on TikTok personally. I think I have like 48,000 followers and it is been nothing but positive for my twitch for my instagram and for my twitter because they want more content 11 seconds or 15 seconds or a minute of these people that click that follow button is not enough for them they want more of you so then they go to your instagram so then they go to your twitter so then they go to your twitch and it's become a powerful movement all over all over social media it's really it's really really awesome
0: would you then say that being on multiple platforms is almost a must. Like from a yes. content creator point of view, is it, is it so important that you should be on all these platforms or at least most of these platforms?
1: 100% yes. Um, I actually learned that through my art posting. There are multiple different art places that you can post art. Tumblr, Flickr, DeviantArt, ArtStation are the ones, Behance. And you'll find, and this is the same thing that you can apply to Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. If you were as a content creator, let's say you're posting a clip, you post that to your 10,000 followers on Twitter, maybe 5,000 of them will follow you on Instagram and maybe 4,000 of them will follow you on Facebook. Why not post it everywhere so that everyone can be reached? So if I'm posting a picture of art to DeviantArt, but let's say 100 people don't follow me on DeviantArt, they follow me on ArtStation. If I don't post that picture, they're never going to see it. So if you're posting a go live on your Instagram story, but not to your Snapchat, not to your Twitter, and not to your Facebook, you have four, three or four platforms there, multiple platforms, even if you're using things like, oh gosh, Tumblr. <laughs> <laughs> if you're still using things like Tumblr, or MySpace, or anything like that, you can even post to your LinkedIn if you want to. You're, you're missing an opportunity to reach people. So yeah, it's very 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 important to post to multiple platforms
0: no oh, i definitely agree i mean we we know this adage even from being content creators as well that when we first started on twitch it was commonplace for people to be like you should also post on youtube because that sure. is a completely different market they have different uh-huh. algorithms and you can also do long form content you can also record things for multiple hours at a time and chop that up into you know, at the time, it was like 10 minute segments. Now it's more acceptable to do 15 to even 30 or even hour long segments now of just gameplay. And then that way you can turn one live stream, for example, if you just did a very rough, I'm going to stream for six hours, and I'm going to record five hours of content during it. That five hours of content is now five separate videos. As of that's minimum. what I
1: actually do for YouTube. Um, I actually do whenever I do role play games, I'll record for the three hours that I'm live, and three hours on Twitch isn't anything. Right. That's barely even getting into the notifications <laughs> going off. Right. Um, but for me, that's three weeks of content because I release weekly. Right, yeah. So it definitely, yeah, makes sense.
0: Yeah, so applying that to social media then, it's pretty much the same thing. It's like the more eyes that you can have on your content, the better your content has a chance to grow. So that is something that a lot of people, including myself, need to learn from, is that trying to engage on all of these platforms and try to understand their algorithms, trying to understand mm-hmm. the algorithms of all of these different platforms is super important. Uh, In order to kind of understand why this post is doing better than others, why, Uh what time did I release it on, what type of exposure, what type of assistance do I have with that, et cetera, et cetera. Uh So that's all great for influencer side. But Uh let's now talk about the charity side, because we have a lot of different charities out there that are trying to look at examples on how to have success on social media. And I think some of the most successful brands out there are ones that have definitely existed since the dawn of Twitter, I feel. Um, Uh The one that I think of is uh, we had James on here for episode four, I believe it was, from To Write Love on Her Arms. And Uh their entire social media presence isn't necessarily talking about charity fundraising. It's just talking about their missions and sharing words of encouragement because they're about, Uh you know, fighting against depression and fighting against anxiety and being alone. So they share these wonderfully positive messages. And I feel like that is a great approach, but it's only one approach. So talking about charities, what can they do to really up their social media game, do you feel?
1: I feel like the more personable any account can be, especially a brand, the better. If you have a brand like Nike or a brand like Apple, they're cold. <laughs> like, I love them. I have an iPhone and an iPad and earbuds, and I, I love, love my Apple products, but they're a cold company. I'm not going to go looking to Apple for warm and fuzzies. I'm going, or personableness. I'm going to see and I'm going to feel that from a company like St. Jude or No Kid Hungry or NAMI because they have a way of connecting. Like you said, like for to write love on her arms, they have a fantastic, amazing way of connecting with people. And if you can form that connection as a brand, then you've already done that. If you that connection is based in those four seconds, you've you've got them. If you can hold them for 11 seconds then you have them for a long time. You make, you create a long-term fan because the next time they see one of your posts and it's another feelsy, doesn't even have to be feelsy. It can just be like pineapple on pizza is great or horrible. Yes or no. In your Instagram story, you've created something that they can connect to, something that they can relate to. It's not constantly, I don't want to say like constantly saying like donate or constantly saying like. Statistics or stuff like that—that that is all. It all has its place and it's great, but so does so does personability and that human feeling.
0: Yeah, there there's a face behind all of these accounts, and that's something that we definitely need to understand. Because even if that face isn't your face as someone representing the company, it should be a recognizable face or a recognizable voice that you are creating for the company that is relatable. And in some cases there's been examples and you know there's been success of companies that kind of go the for lack of a better term meme route and trying to be against the grain but in a hilarious way or in a different way and of course we're talking about wendy's um yes what is your opinion on that kind of wendy's approach then to social media and what they are doing there
1: i think it's fantastic you have the wendy's and the denny's and the moon pies and the Xbox and Xbox Game Pass. You have all these accounts that have a really good voice of being the people. I like to call them the people accounts because (laughs) if you don't know about how Wendy's got started, they gave her account login to like a hundred high school students as an experiment. And they said, these are your guidelines that you're allowed to follow, have fun, enjoy. That's how Wendy's got started. And Wendy's has literally been, well, the Wendy's social media account on Twitter at least, they have been the example, the the striving goal for a lot of people to just be personable. And it's the people accounts do so well, but there's a very thin line, as we've seen with others. I'm not going to call them out, but we've seen some companies fumble and trip up a little bit. And that's that is the danger in being the people accounts.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I work with a executive for an esports organization that will remain nameless and they don't tell me any nda breaking things but they're always constantly like we have meetings non-stop every single day about our social plans and what we should do and we have very differing opinions and that's always a good thing to have when you have multiple people talking about the same concept and the same idea and pitching ideas back and forth to kind of understand what will be effective what won't be effective and just like us just like any other company out there We struggle to develop an identity, especially from the get-go, because we look at companies like a Wendy's or a Moon Pie, we're like, is controversial the way to go? I mean, yes, no. Is commenting on something that is relevant now the way to go? And the answer is Uh maybe. It really depends on what voice you've already developed, and if you haven't developed a voice, this might be your chance to actually do that. So Uh it's definitely a fine line to walk. I personally... I try to avoid the, the controversial hot takes, so to speak. And yeah. um, I think that's definitely the safe way to go. Uh, and I think it is overall the way to not get fired randomly for making a very interesting choice. Mm-hmm. Sure. Mm-hmm.
1: As much as you want to do the controversial thing, sometimes it might be good in the long run because all marketing is good marketing, as they say. Uh, all publicity is good publicity, but sometimes it can you, you have to deal with the consequences.
0: Let's then talk about charities working with influencers, because we've covered the importance of influencers, we've covered the importance of charities developing their brand, their voice, etc. What about for charities that are trying to connect with influencers? Is it that same, we want to be personable approach because we've received this and it's more so from game devs and publishers on the content creator side, but charities have started to reach out to influencers and try to connect with them. And we've all received that email. Hey, streamer, I love your content. I have seen this and this and this, I think you'd be a great fit for working with us, you know, like, and then Uh they blast that to 50,000, 100,000 content creators or something like that. So what would your advice be to charities that want to connect with these individuals? Is the cold email approach a great approach if they do it right? Or is there some other way to do it?
1: I am not a huge fan of the cold email. One thing that I learned through working with Microsoft, I was considered a social media expert on the team, but our job was to connect with our in with our community. So every single tweet that came through got a personal reply. It whether it was I'm going live to I just my stream isn't working. They were getting replies from from people. I'm a huge fan of people. So if a company wants to reach out do a do two seconds of research. Does this person play what I'm asking them to play? Does this person like animals? If I'm an animal charity, like, do they even like children? And like, like, that's, that's a huge thing. I've seen people who are, I've, I've seen companies reach out to me, for example, and about, about like weight loss supplements. And I'm like, I, I don't need or use them and I'm definitely not pro them. It takes five seconds to look at anything that I have to know that I'm not a supplement person. So I would say that like if a brand, if a charity is wanting to work with streamers, we have our whole lives are out in the open for some of us, whether what we eat in the morning to how many times we go to the bathroom during the day, to what we're playing, to what we're interested in, to if we have kids, if we don't like kids, if we don't like animals, if we have animals, it takes two seconds to say, is this person a good fit? And if they are, then you're more likely to have a passionate person instead of just an ignored email.
0: There is something that we always suggest to charities that are coming to Tiltify that wanna understand the space a little bit more, especially with the current state of the world. There is a huge influx of charities reaching out, trying to get digitized, so to speak, in a more modernized way. And they look at live streaming, they wanna connect with them. And their first response is, okay, well, how do I do this? And their second response is, how do I get this big influencer uh, Uh to support us? And it's like, well, and we've said this time and time again, and Michael's response is always my favorite. Well, you don't. (laughs) You don't get these influencers. They have to understand your mission and want to support it because it's something that we believe in. So Uh the last thing that I kind of want to cover with this is definitely the St. Jude approach, because our last two episodes have been about St. Jude. But I want to just quickly touch on it. Because it's the big influencer versus the small influencer discussion that we've had, where is there a difference between a big influencer and a smaller influencer? The short answer is, of course. But how does a charity convey their mission to a big influencer versus a small influencer? Like, what, how do you feel is the importance or the difference between the two?
1: I am a huge fan of big influencers. I think that they're great. They can move mountains when they want to. I, even when they don't want to, they can they can sneeze about a product and the next thing you know, it's sold off the shelves. But I'm a bigger fan of what's considered nano or micro influencers. That would be the 10,000... I say micro influencers are between like twenty to 10,000 followers on any platform. Micro or nano can be used interchangeably. But essentially anywhere between 5,000 to 20,000 is a very sweet spot if a company wants to work directly with a large influencer they're going to have to be able to speak their language they're going to have to be able to say and i don't want to say kiss butt because that's not really a good term (laughs) but they're going to have to be able to cater to them they're going to have to be able to say like we want you to do this we we hope that you would work with us they need to do their research and everything like that but the same can be applied for for your smaller influencers for for one huge influencer you might be able to get a few thousand nano or micro-influencers, though, and they can move mountains and they can sneeze and sell products off shelves as well, or they can stream and raise thousands of dollars for a charity.
0: Yeah. The reason why I want to connect this to St. Jude is because at the time of recording today, which is what, May 20th, 2020, they mm-hmm. just broke $2 million for the Play Live prize season. For those yes. that don't know the prize season, it starts April 1st, technically, And uh, you can start fundraising on April 1st, but most people don't start until May, being May being the primary prize season month, right? Uh So people could fundraise since April 1st, but a majority of the fundraising started April 27th, May 1st, somewhere in that area. So in the last three weeks, three and a half weeks, they have raised probably 1.9 of that 2 million that they raised today. So Uh the fact that they've been able to accomplish that, and if you look at the leaderboards that they have, I believe the top 250 leaderboard is what they provide. 250 influencers have made a campaign and fundraise for them and have raised at least a couple thousand dollars for their organization. So Uh that all adds up. And I was actually having this discussion with what you would call a nano influencer, someone that is very small, has a very small community, but they've been able to raise thousands of dollars. And there's so many examples of this. Yes, you want the people that can raise a $100,000. Of course you do because that is $100,000. Why wouldn't you want that? But you can also find the smaller influencers that one can raise thousands of dollars now or hundreds of dollars because every dollar does make a difference. At St. Jude, it's $32 to cover their operational fees for a second. So being able to say, hey, this person raised, you know, $100. That is the equivalent of three whole seconds of our hospital. And we can't miss a second because then our hospital wouldn't be able to survive. So the connection to St. Jude is simply that, is that... They have a mix of the Dr. Lupos that can do $2.3 million in 24 hours. They also have the mix of, you know, Lobos right now. I believe he's at 120, dollars $130,000, and he started fundraising a couple weeks ago. We have the Bloody Fasters. We have the Nega Oryxes from last year that have raised hundreds of thousands of dollars. But you also have the Draskias that have raised $7,000 this year. $8,000 8, as,
1: <laughs> as of last night,
0: $8,000 for St. Jude. You have the Caspers that have raised $5,000 through three weekends. You have even smaller influencers that have been re- able to raise hundreds of dollars.
1: Oh, I was going to say, I'd like to call someone out actually, and sure. use I can use this as my shout out time. Um, further than Dan, previously known as Bacon, he has a very heartwarming community, and he has raised in this entire month, and it has been phenomenal watching him do that. He sits there with less than 100 viewers, and he just did a name change at the beginning of the month where his name is completely different than it used to be, and he's already hitting that much. He's number 12 on the leaderboard right now. I was looking at it. Or you have McLaughy Taffy as well, who's sitting here with $15,000. he has got, I think his average is around like 150 viewers and it just blows my mind i'm like this is amazing this is awesome these people are doing phenomenal
0: yeah and it all it all adds up no 100 i agree because it all adds up and basically the tldr is that yes this episode's about social media but (laughs) as a charity that is targeting or looking at potential people to work with and influencers to work with there are many things to consider, but the main things to consider are: one, you don't necessarily get these influencers. The influencers need to want to get with you and support yes. your cause. And number two,
1: yes. So, can I say something about yes. number one? Yes. Uh, when it comes to when it comes to these influencers wanting to work with you, it's good to have a voice that says, "Come work with us." If you're, if that's kind of what I was talking about earlier with the personability. If you're a charity that. Has that open arms like St. Jude does? They started Play Live, and they said, "Come, anyone, one and all, come raise money during this month." And it has shown, obviously.
0: Yes, okay. no, it has <laughs> definitely shown. And to play off of that idea, the the concept that I want to get was uh, having boots on the ground is so important for these charitable organizations. We have seen many examples, and St. Jude again is a perfect example where. It was just zachary witten for the longest time for many years the first three four years even of play live now they're into their sixth seventh season now but whenever he's at a convention going to these gaming conventions connecting with these influencers directly he will give you your his undivided attention he will the moment you want to talk to him and you can snag him somehow he's a very busy person but Uh if you find him and grab him for a second He will give you the world. He will give you 5, 10, 15 minutes of undivided attention. He will block out everyone to listen to you. I remember Uh going up to him 2016 when I didn't know him yet. And uh, he was just there at a convention. And my friend Renee was trying to introduce me. The moment he's like, oh, hey, Renee, how's it going? And, you know, hugs, high fives. Hey, how's it going? Catching up. She's like, yeah, I want to introduce you to Casper. He turns to me, like, brushes his mustache a little bit and goes... (laughs) hey, how's it going? And gives you like just the undivided attention. I think that's so important because Zach is only one person and he tried to do this with literally thousands of creators, which is why he needed more people. But as a charity starting, you want to do the same thing. You want to have your boots on the ground at these conventions, connecting with people via email, being in their Twitch chats, being in their YouTube chats. I can think of another example of an organization that got more interested in live streaming a year ago a year ago last month so 13 months ago they knew nothing and they decided to venture out into the cold depths of Boston Massachusetts for PAX East it was their first gaming convention never been there before and you know fast forward a year later they're at PAX East again in March and they're braving the cold but they know the lay of the land they know these developers they're even talking to some of these developers to see if they can have a relationship with them as well But the point is, is that having boots on the ground is almost equally as important as your social presence because you need to connect with these creators if you want to work with these creators.
1: And a little bit of connection goes a really long way. I worked with, or I I didn't work with even, I just represented No Kid Hungry at TwitchCon. And now they're one of my favorite charities. They have sent me, they sent me a bag, like just like a little tote that you use to carry your vegetables in. And it's one of my favorite things. And it meant so much to me. St. Jude sends out care packages. They send out stickers. They send out buttons. I don't have it on right now, but I'm meaning to replace my pop socket with the St. Jude one. I wear a St. Jude logo around my neck all the time because it's it's these little tiny things these little connections that make that personability that 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 and i call it i call it souls connecting because it kind of just makes sense like that
0: it definitely can, does
1: it no does, i
0: right? i wasn't gonna laugh i wasn't gonna laugh because it totally <laughs> does make sense you want to make that personal connection i know that yes. with uh, even one of our employees that is the account manager for no kid hungry She's now best friends. She's like the best of friends with Carla who works at No Kid Hungry because Carla is the one, Cat out of the bag. She was the one I was referring to about PAX East last year. She knew nothing about the gaming space, wanting to get into it. She ended up showing up. I guided her around, showed her, you know, a couple of the things. And then fast forward a year later, she's like, oh, I might have time to meet with you, Casper. We can maybe have lunch at this time, but I'm super busy connecting with all these folks and giving them my time and making that connection. And that all started, again, with emails, with social media, with having that voice. And while everyone can work on their brand and everyone can work on their voice, having that connection, however you make it, that can stem from a million different places, especially your social media accounts. So in summary, what would be the three most important things that we've talked about here today? Do you feel?
1: I feel like having your voice don't overstep the line i think would be another one and try to make that connection would be the last i would say those would be the three top things find your voice don't overstep the line and definitely make that personable connection
0: it's been awesome talking to maggie about social media and about just connecting with charities and being influencers we have a couple questions from the community about social media and about you and even about me at some point i feel so let's quickly get into these this question from David who asks when handling public communications and social interactions what are some things to keep in mind especially with regards to making sure there's personality behind the brand without overstepping professionalism so that is
1: on point (laughs) that
0: is literally on point to what we just said but in summation what do you feel is the most important thing there
1: I would say always try to put your best foot forward always type like your mother's gonna read it or your grandmother's gonna read it, sure. or your lawyer's gonna read it, oh, <laughs> or a yes. judge is gonna read it. Anything you put on the internet is is going to be permanent, but that's in reference to overspe- overstepping professionalism. There are ways to be personal and to be connectable and to have that person-to-person connection without sounding unprofessional or without sounding too, I don't wanna say immature, but immature in your voice. One of the things that we did at Microsoft, if someone was like, I have a problem, or I'm having a bad day, or your product is crap, we would go and look at their profile. And we'd say, okay, this person, his name is Kevin, and he is into Halo. If they were saying, I'm having a bad day, I'd say, that's really unfortunate to hear Kevin. Like, make sure you're you're connecting with them on that. And then say, like, maybe you should play a game of Halo. Or we have this way to do this thing. Like, if they like cats, just find, find something to connect with them about. That's got to be the best way to make sure that you have personality behind what you're saying.
0: (laughs) We have a question from Rebecca who asks, do you find it difficult balancing between work mode, mom mode, and streamer mode all at the same time? You're essentially having three jobs there in a sense. How do you balance that?
1: Four if you add in doing art. Oh, Um, yes. Yes, yeah, it's actually a joke. And even the kids will acknowledge that mom is going to work for stream, or if I'm drawing, it's mom is working. It is very hard to balance. It took me a few years to find the drive to sit down when I was doing only commissions. And that was the only thing I had to do was commissions and be a mom. It took me a lot to separate the two and say, my commissions are a job. I would schedule out time. I'd wake up at six in the morning. I'd make the kids breakfast. I would schedule out time with them in the morning to make sure that they were taken care of and set up and all that other stuff. And then I would schedule like literally I have I have a Google calendar with alarms that go off at like eleven forty-five, eat, feed the kids, like do these things, take a break. When I was doing only commissions, I would actually draw in my in my dining room. I would set up my tablet and I would sit there and draw so I could keep an eye on the kids, but I would schedule out everything. It is very hard to balance, but it's very necessary. I've taught my children how to present themselves, how to communicate. I've taken things that I've learned from working as a freelancer to teach my children, like drive and scheduling. And I call it eating the frog. So that's one thing that I've learned through everything. And it's helped me the most. Do the thing that you don't want to do first and then do what you want to do afterwards. So that's probably been my my biggest takeaway from work mode, mom mode, streamer mode.
0: I think ultimately to be real about the situation is like, it is hard. It's already hard for people to balance two jobs, whether they're working two part-time jobs or if they're working in, in school or if they're trying to do some type of work, school, and stream type of thing, especially for a lot of our listeners that are also influencers. But to kind of even go further than that, I've been described as being a robot. I accept that. But it's naps are your best friend uh, at times, even though I hate napping. It's also scheduling
1: time. Yeah, like schedule out every Thursday or Friday, depending on if I'm streaming or if I if I'm having friend time, I even schedule my friend time. Like I literally have times on Thursdays where I'm like, okay, I have exactly two and a half hours to sit down and play video games with my friends. And if they miss that time, then they know I'm going to be pissed.
0: (laughs) It is totally fine to have a schedule that that is ultimately what it is. And even if you have to schedule it down to a T for some things like that's just the way the world is right now, the way Uh it 2020 is, is that you can't always be partying and having a good time and going with the flow. If you also have a job and if you also want to be a successful content creator, for example,
1: there's a phrase that is constantly echoed in my brain that it can be applied to anything, but rich people don't sleep. They work hard. they don't have eight hours of sleep they have three hours of sleep successful people don't sleep they work they don't take breaks they don't expect it to be handed to them they they do the things
0: yeah no i agree with that especially since one of my favorite notions out there is that in order to become a master at something you need to put in ten thousand hours into it in order to master something fully and you know when it comes to your life expectancy and your lifetime that is a big chunk of your time that you are dedicating in order to get good at something so Uh whether it is dedicating multiple hours a day at getting good at art or dedicating multiple hours a day to become a great editor or to make content on the internet or to do outreach as a charity to an influencer or to Uh do your research to watch their streams and to watch vods of their content i know that james even referred to that where when he wanted to reach out to an influencer because he felt already that they were a really good fit for the organization given their social presence and how that's an extension of them so they saw that they were talking about a lot of these mental health things he not only identified them as someone that might be interested in their cause he also did his research he looked at vods he looked at their content from a year ago from two years ago and present so that he could understand okay this is definitely someone that i feel would already resonate with our brand Let's reach out. Let's connect with them. Let's see how they would like to relate with that. But that is going to do it for episode number eight of The Joy of Fundraising. We're unfortunately out of time at this point, but I want to thank Draskia, even though you're here every week. I want to thank you for taking the time and being here and being our special guest. Do you have any shout outs that you'd like to give?
1: Just to our social, (laughs) like every week. (laughs) But yeah, no, I, our social is important. Every social is important. Just final words can i do final words instead of a
0: shout out oh you want to do final words okay let me get my shout outs real quick follow our socials episode number nine we're going to be talking about some of these other social platforms and kind of enhancing your reach out there so it's going to be an extension of this topic this one was talking about social media basics next one we're going to be talking about discord and tiktok and all these more modernized platforms that you should definitely be getting on for charities so charities listen up to that one and maggie here's our final words for the episode
1: don't forget that your social is an extension of you. Put yourself in it. Make when people when people look at your Twitter, make sure that they see you and they don't see a robot. And People see your company. Make sure it has a face behind it. It doesn't have to be like an actual face. Like it doesn't have to be one person. Social can have a spirit or a soul to it and make sure that they have something to, to connect to.
0: For sure. Well, that's it for episode number eight of the Joy Fundraising. We hope you all enjoyed listening. Tune in for episode number nine in two weeks, but otherwise we will see you later.